What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Have you ever felt controlled by something? Or how about this? Have you ever felt controlled by a quote-unquote healthy behavior? Or at least something that seems healthy on the surface, but spirals into something else? Today's guest has, more than once, and she now helps others navigate similar challenges. Her name is Molly Burney, and she holds a master's in clinical psychology from Antioch University with a specialization in addiction studies. And based on her own recovery, she has a personal soft spot for working with disordered eating, chronic dieting, and other self-destructive patterns around food and exercise. Today, we'll also hear Dr. Megan's thoughts for a listener who feels caught up in the grasp of risky and compulsive sexual behaviors. To support this show and get some awesome goodies at the same time, please head to thepleasurechest.com to shop for sex toys and much more. They've been championing inclusive sex positivity for decades, and they provide free education, currently through Instagram sessions led by Sex Positive Sophia. Follow at Pleasure Chest Stores to stay in the loop and learn more. So Molly's parents divorced when she was six years old. She said it was a pretty gnarly divorce, and there was a lot of publicity around it, given that both of her parents were actors. Her dad, a theater performer, her mom, well-known in TV. That all left her feeling lonely at both houses, while each parent endured their own emotional turbulence. Some of the most heartwarming memories she has from childhood happened soon after. When my mom got remarried for a short five-year period there, the experience of just having more people around the table, just having this larger family, it was almost as though, as I look back on it, it, it wouldn't have mattered who those people were, but the idea that suddenly those empty places at the table were filled and there was more love and more community. Like that whole memory is really rich to me. Molly also experienced dark times, some of which she wrote about in a recent Medium feature called Things I Learned Getting Punched in the Face and Why It Took Me So Long to Stop. At the start of the essay, she brings us back to her boxing days. She said that great athletes talk about this clarity and quiet they feel before events as they visualize how their muscles are going to work and their performance. Molly, though, she was visualizing faking a seizure. Not my classiest moment, I have to admit. In the essay, she wrote, I wasn't a bad boxer. My timing was sharp. I was strong for my weight class. And my amateur record was three and one. But I always knew that my drive to fight was rooted not in passion, but in pathology. I liked the idea of boxing, and certainly all my siblings are really great in their own martial arts sports. And so I, I always had an idea like, oh, this, this would be fun if I could actually do this. And I didn't get into boxing until I was, I was much older, but it was almost as though it, I, was, I was just drawn into it. But it had so much more to do with the idea of who I thought boxing made me what it made my body into and what I thought that implied about me. All of the implication around it felt like what I was chasing more than the sport itself. This is kind of embarrassing to talk about, but it was, it was lovely to be out in the world and be 
acknowledge, like I, you know, I had coworkers who would tease me about it. And truthfully, there's a part of me that totally loved that. Uh, I loved being recognized for it. And, and I, I liked the idea of like, oh, I want to be one of those badass chicks that isn't afraid to get hurt and isn't afraid to work hard and isn't afraid to sweat. But when it actually came to doing it, it was really fucking painful. But I kept going because there was so much history growing up that enforced that this was going to be, I don't know, that this identity could solve something for me. One thing that really spoke to me about Molly's story was the messaging she absorbed about femininity, which not many people associate with boxing. Society teaches us that women and femmes are meeker and weaker, you know, slight and polite. Yet Molly felt similarly pressured to fit into a particular mold. Some of this came from growing up in Los Angeles, of course, with film industry all around her. But she also received very overt messaging from her father around what she needed to look like to have value. What was so confusing about it is that it wasn't as simple as like women need to be skinny because there was this extra layer of like kind of this the psychological implication of it too that uh, women who were too vigilant about their looks that that was unattractive too that you had to try hard but not too hard because that looked desperate so it was like there was there was this this attempt to find this middle ground of like okay how do I be in shape and attractive and care about my looks because clearly this is extremely important to my value. But how do I also look like I'm not actually caring about this? My whole foray and my relationship to to working out and athleticism was like, oh, this was the acceptable middle ground. Essentially, I could care about how I looked. I could sculpt my body, but it wouldn't be necessarily about uh, vanity or needing to be glamorous or sexy because those those messages were not to be valued and that those discredited women, the desire to be attractive and sensual or draw attention to themselves made women, the word my dad used all the time was bimbo. Molly said she started boxing relatively late in the game in her late 20s. And by that time, she was several years into recovery from a brutal eating disorder. She had done a tremendous amount of deep digging and self-work and had this really solid understanding of what she called the pathological values that had been instilled in her growing up. She had also pursued her master's in clinical psychology with a specialization in eating disorders and addiction. Even so, she couldn't clearly name these concepts until after her boxing experiences. It was really in seeing them in fucking skywriting, which is what the boxing experience was, that um, that brought them out of the woodwork like this. Like, I had always been someone who dressed pretty casually and kind of tried to hide my body. And yet at the same time had a part of myself that really wanted to show off my body. But I was also really super ashamed of that part of myself because that was the bimbo part that I couldn't let anyone see. So I was aware that there were a lot of internal conflicts around my femininity, my sexuality, my sensuality and body image, but I couldn't have named them as clearly (laughs) until I saw how hard I was willing to literally fight to maintain some sort of balance or to, to establish some sort of identity that I thought would allow me to be at peace with all of them. Finally, Molly reached a turning point when these realizations about what she was really fighting or trying to prove in the ring met seeing that she was pushing herself far too hard. While she has a history of compulsive exercise, something she told me she still has to occasionally check in about with her husband or her friends, boxing brought this behavior to a whole new level. Rather than just spending too long in the gym most days or refusing to take breaks, 
which are destructive in their own right. Molly's body was literally breaking down. That sort of realization of like, oh, am I willing to pay the cost of multiple regular concussions and still not be able to stop? And I had enough people around me saying like, this is pretty violent. You know, it's not like I was 22 and was going to have a career in this thing. This was totally of my own of my own volition. And you know, I, I was competing as an amateur. There was nothing depending on it except for my identity. So I guess the turning point would be that, that it was breaking me down and I was still terrified to stop. To me, that sounded so much like the battle of anyone who is grappling with a condition that causes strong compulsions. The ones I mentioned that start out seeming pretty positive, you know, the kind you get praise for. Wow, look at that discipline. When real discipline in such cases, the hardest and most important form anyway, would be stopping to take care of yourself or to seek help. When I shared that with Molly, she said, I didn't have discipline. Discipline had me. I think the more heroic move would be, guys, this hurts. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Like that would have been the most authentic communication. Not that I would have been above faking a seizure, I think, if I got terrified enough. But the heroic move is, in that case, stopping. And part of struggling to achieve and maintain this identity of like, yeah, I'm going to be a badass bitch and I'm going to have muscles and I'm going to fight with the guys and I'm going to be credible and I'm not going to be a bimbo. That maintaining that meant continuing the upkeep of discipline and I didn't have the choice to not be disciplined. Many of the clients Molly works with are dealing with their own self-destructive behaviors. She sees high-functioning folks who are struggling with the kind of shame she knows very well. These behaviors start out as a means of coping with deeper problems, until the behaviors themselves become a huge problem. It sounds like that's what happened in the case of this week's listener question from JJ, who wrote this. I have never told anyone this, so please bear with me. I'm a cis guy in my mid-twenties, in a committed relationship with a woman I love. I used quotation marks around committed because I do feel completely emotionally committed to her. I'm also very ashamed to say that I have been paying a cam girl to get me off without her knowing it. I am sober, gave up drugs and alcohol five years ago. Not trying to make excuses, it just feels like I replaced that obsession with this new one of having real sex with others on the DL. Now with COVID happening, I am scared that I will step over a line and get us both sick. When we took a break last year, I did have sex without protection, and it was escalating until we got back together. Never told her about that, but I did get tested and all. For a while, I thought I could be done with that, like our relationship coming back together gave me strength or whatnot. Whacking off used to get me by, but not anymore. I'm afraid that if I tell her I need help, she will find out what I've done and leave me. I feel like the pandemic is making things worse. Can't even get work done lately. Anyway, thanks for reading. I would appreciate guidance. Feel free to call me an a-hole, JJ. JJ, thank you so much for this question and for your courage and for your trust. I do not think you're an a-hole, and I have so much compassion for what you're experiencing. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. JJ, thank you so much for your question, and I can just feel your distress and conflict First of all, I would never call anyone an a-hole, and I'm so sorry and have so much compassion that you're feeling like a loser. But what I do know is 
you are basically struggling with an out-of-control sexual behavior. And in many ways, it's not dissimilar to probably when your experience with both drugs and alcohol felt out of control to you. Again, the obsessive thinking, the cravings, all the behaviors that were driving your use at the time. And in fact, often whenever we have sort of a dysregulated behavior, it's an attempt to sort of resolve a psychological issue with deeper roots. And so the first thing I'm going to say is absolutely, I need you to seek treatment with a qualified therapist, ASEC, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So it's AASECT.org. By state, they will tell you who is qualified, um, who has a training as a sex therapist, but also and in particular, looking for somebody who works with out-of-control sexual behavior. In fact, you might want to check out the work of Doug Braun Harvey. He has the Harvey Institute and he's written books and articles extensively in working with men with out-of-control sexual behavior. First of all, I can say congratulations. You know, five years of sobriety is no small thing. You've already done something incredibly hard. So I absolutely have hope that you're going to be able to do this work. And that the distress is there, that you're realizing because you are committed and want to see a future with your current girlfriend. In order for that to happen, it's about getting therapy and treatment for yourself now. You know, one of the things you mentioned was sometimes that sex is dangerous. I don't know if that is sort of pre-quarantine. And certainly the stress of quarantine makes almost any challenging behavior that much harder because stress, it sort of hijacks our nervous system. And so, again, I imagine... You're, you know, reaching out to these cam girls is your version of using, right? It's it's sort of to feel or not feel certain things or it's a sensation seeking. And so working with a therapist who can help you with these out of control sexual behaviors is sort of the first most important first step. You can then work on the relationship and at finding what is the right time and in what way to bring your girlfriend in, because ultimately It's about building trust. You know, I often say as a therapist, and I know we all have different ideas about this as couples therapists, but that if your cheating had happened in the past and it had something that had been sort of one and done or been over for over a year or longer or months at a time, that would be different in terms of disclosing to a partner. Because I think that if something is in the past, you don't necessarily want to blow up the relationship or put that in your partner's lap. It's about sitting with your own feelings and working through your own feelings of shame and or guilt. But because this is something you're currently struggling with, and I don't know how long you guys were together, so she may or may not be aware of or was there for you when you were struggling with your own sobriety. Ultimately, it is possible if you both would so choose to engage in a relationship where you're practicing the principles of sexual health. Doug refers to six of them. Consent. It's non-exploitive. It's honest. You have shared values. You're protected from STTs and unwanted pregnancy. And most importantly, you're focused on pleasure. I really know and believe that you're reaching out because you feel the conflict and you realize this is out of control and you don't want it to hurt your relationship. And it's hurting you in terms of your own guilt and the feelings that you're having. And so you really need more tools in your toolbox, as I often say. Again, reaching out to ASEC and finding a therapist to work with that's going to help you navigate how and in what way to work with this on your own, but also in what way to bring it to your relationship. And then ultimately, ideally, it's how you as a couple can explore sexual practices and behaviors that you do find exciting and maybe a little bit dangerous, but it's all within the context of consent and your shared turn on. So as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about recognizing that this is an issue that you really, really need professional support around and through And that that is the first step and that person, that treatment will help you figure out how to talk to your partner about this. You can always talk to your partner about feeling the need for 
therapy. I think that's a really healthy thing for all of us. And you don't need to get into the details until you have, you know, a really good system in place. I asked Molly to share what she might say to someone who is in such a place dealing with self-destructive behaviors, whether they're sex-related or not, and may or may not have access to professional support. You know, I think one of the biggest steps that I, I like to to lead with is understanding that this is going to take courage. I think there's a lot of a lot of talk in the treatment community and the recovery community about, well, you have to be willing. You have to be willing. And yes, willingness is a part of this. But the other side of that coin is the courage to actually sit with the feelings, which our brains tell us is fucking dangerous. And that's based on trauma and history and how we develop as, as, as little kids and the messages we get from our parents. But when we're actually in that experience of feeling the loneliness that's going to drive us to make the call to have like super unsafe sex or that choosing to feel the feelings requires an enormous amount of courage. And I think that's important for people to understand. It's asking them to choose a neural pathway and make a new neural pathway in the brain that's like off-roading. You know, if uh, the high-risk sex is the, the path in tall grass that you've walked repeatedly, it's going to get worn down and it's going to be easy to walk and your brain is going to take the, the path of least resistance. So to choose to off-road off that path and actually be with the feeling instead, that's fucking courageous. That's a big ask. And it's an ask that in the moment for the the person who's suffering feels like it's life or death. So I I always want to start by explaining how much courage it really takes to make the other choice than the compulsive behavior, because you're really asking yourself to override your brain in a significant dangerous way or a way that feels dangerous. One thing that I think can make allowing for difficult feelings tricky is what I think of as positivity porn, these ideas that we can and should just be happy or believe that thoughts create reality, so just don't think about anything negative and magic, you know, voila, blissful euphoria. I so appreciate that Molly's messages in her essays, on Instagram, and undoubtedly with her coaching clients provide helpful alternatives to the just choose how you want to feel today notions which she realizes work for some people and in some cases, but especially for anyone struggling with mental health issues or compulsive behaviors, or if you're dealing with negative thoughts that are actual guidance that we need. Oh, that makes me bananas. Look, I I understand that for some people that works very well, and I know it kind of makes me an asshole to label that as Pollyanna or overly saccharine and write it off, but what I think can be really dangerous about it is that it it's dismissive to those for whom that's not their experience. It's dismissive to those who are like, no, no, I wake up and I'm a fucking hostage to my depression. In the example of your, your listener, I can't stop having high-risk sex and, and I know I'm endangering myself and I don't have any more choice about that. So to hear, you know, just choose happiness. Well, lady, if it was that simple, I assure you that we would have done it by now. So it tends to kind of invalidate the the nuances of the human experience and suffering and all that. That's not to say that I'm I'm not for reframing as a technique for working with a lot of those dark feelings, but damn, it ain't so simple as let's just manifest some happiness and get on with it. Molly remains committed to embracing and working through negative thoughts in her own life too. When we spoke, she was seven months pregnant, and those months, she said, had been an experience to say the least. When I came to this point in my life where it was time to have a baby, that 
that my recovery would be challenging, that I was going to have a ton of noise about my body. And I, I certainly did earlier on. At this point, it's more like there's not much I can control. It's more an issue of like acceptance that this is what my body is doing right now. But I certainly started off with this idea of, well, I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to be worried about trivial things like the nursery or the baby clothes or like, I'm, I'm just going to do this practically. I'm going to learn how to be a great co-parent with my husband. And I was trying to prioritize those elements and kind of judged myself. Shocking, right, that I would fall into self-judgment for possibly caring about baby clothes and cute maternal things. And I so wanted to maintain my identity independent from pregnancy. And yet in this process, they're so inextricably linked that I ultimately had to surrender a lot. Everything from um, having the identity of someone who was a really fast-paced mover in the world, and now I'm, I've had to slow down significantly to just, you know, I'm, exercise is obviously very different now. <laughs> in fact, before I was really showing, when I just had a very little baby bump, I would be in the gym and I would have to take more frequent breaks because your body is doing all sorts of insane things and um, needs to rest more frequently. But because I didn't look pregnant, I had noise that the other people in the gym were going to be judging me. And of course, you know, I'm very clear that no one actually gave a fuck about what my workout routine was. But a couple times I caught myself like over-exaggerating my bump just to make sure that they knew that I was pregnant and not uh, lazy here. Uh, so... I got to see elements of that come up, um, yeah, things like that come up, where I have to have a sense of humor about, oh, really, you know, your grandiosity is on display here, Molly, or, you know, your ego is running this. This has been a process of surrender that I anticipated it would be. I've been totally game for it. And now at 37 weeks, I'm really fucking ready for it to be done. I really relate to Molly's sort of rebellion of certain norms and expectations. For her, They've carried over to social media as well. And as with her earlier thoughts about pregnancy, not wanting to get too into baby clothes and the like, her resistance early on has changed over time, partly due to the pandemic. Me avoiding Instagram for years was part of my somehow like part of my like, well, I'm 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 gonna do this differently. I'm I'm not gonna be like other people. And then of course the virus hit and the joke among my friends is like the virus broke Molly and now she's on Instagram. But that was, even that was part of my like, I'm going to be different, but not from a freed up place necessarily, but more from a like, I'm afraid I'm actually just as average as everybody else. So I'm going to avoid it. That's just still a little public with the pathology. And then like having to take a look at, oh, oh, there's actually a ton of fear underneath that. And for me, the fear was always about like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be average. I'm going to be overlooked. And these aren't like conscious fears that are running the show. Nor have they panned out to be predictive, in my opinion. As I mentioned, I love how authentic Molly's messages are online. I told her about a few Instagram posts that really spoke to me. The first one reads, Compassion is the new discipline. Below it, Molly wrote, Rather than being disciplined about our own discipline, what would it look like if compassion was the new discipline? I'm so grateful that that was moving for you. It's it's still something that I have to remind myself of, again, because we beat ourselves up instinctively. We know how to do that. As a culture, we're really skilled at doing that. And the truth is, if self-abuse was really an effective technique for transformation, it would have worked by now. So what would actually happen if we leaned into compassion as the discipline that we reached for when we missed our own mark? And just trying to stay 
curious about what that would look like and, and how often many of us are terrified to do that. Another one of Molly's posts reads, you are the Calvary you've been waiting for. I just love that idea. And as it turns out, this is another deeply personal one for Molly. God, I think of all the desperate attempts that I made to get rescue or initiate rescue or solve the problem of myself. I spent many years doing that, and whether it was like me looking for rescue at the bottom of a jar of peanut butter or awaiting the cavalry in the relationship that I was in, or even in the way that I like compulsively chased down different kinds of therapy and healers and this modality and that modality and doing everything I could to solve the problem of myself. That idea that, that we're some broken thing that needs to be amputated or fixed or adjusted, I think is part of the problem. The magic of humanity is that we can change our relationship to these parts of ourselves. This is not, I know this is a little bit vague here, but it's not about amputating these parts. It's about including them. And we are the only ones who can do that. Not the like therapist with 55 licenses, not the fucking shaman, not that those aren't helpful resources, but it's ultimately our relationship to these things. That, said Molly, is what can make or break the human process. Given all that she has experienced herself and the support she provides for others around these challenges, I asked her what she would say to someone who's really struggling to have self-compassion. What I end up hearing most often is people feeling that they don't deserve it, and people worry that if they give themselves too much compassion, or any compassion, that it becomes this slippery slope into laziness or just permission, and then they'll never change. I think the, the principle of compassion is that we just say yes to wherever we are right now. And that doesn't mean that it, we're permanently in this state, but that it has to start with us in acceptance and love for ourselves in the complete brokenness that we may be in in that moment. And just like off-roading from that tall grass path, that giving ourselves compassion is actually a courageous act, especially if we feel we don't deserve it because we're afraid it's going to come with more dangerous shit. We haven't tried it, is the truth, for most of us, until we do. But that compassion itself is, um, I think, an act of courage, especially if we're in those really dark pits of despair. It's kind of a grim ending, forgive me. But. I actually thought that was a pretty beautiful ending. To learn much more about Molly Burney, find links to her website, the article we talked about, and that Instagram account she finally started at the links down in the show notes. This episode was narrated and produced by me, August McLaughlin, with audio management by Mackenzie Nizal, engineer and the founder and organizer of Period. Learn more about this collective of femme and non-binary podcasters at periodnetwork.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.